Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Can you hear me? Yes? Okay, good. Okay, I just want to make sure. Uh, Shabbat Shalom and Mazal Tov, everyone. The uh, Torah portion for this morning is uh, short. The half Torah was quite long. But the, um, it's, uh, it's in a classic. One of the things we know about this particular Torah portion is simply by the style of it. In other words, it has two columns, and it's like that in the Torah for, for, the, for the point, but it's reproduced actually in the Chumash, the printed Bible. It has, it's called a bicolonic fashion. And that form of poetry where you have two columns of text is considered amongst the most ancient. And by ancient, what do I mean? We have records of human writing dating back to about 5,500 years ago. The earliest poetry that we find operates in a bicolonic fashion, so this text is very, very old. That having been said, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> I want to talk about something else. And uh, this uh, yesterday morning in my extortion after Yom Kippur, I opened up the Torah portion knowing I would need to say something this morning. And what jumped out to my attention was one word that appears five times in this very short Torah portion. Now, there are some words when they appear in the Torah and they're repeated over and over again. We are never surprised. Some examples of words would be, for example, God's name. Another example of a word that's repeated over and over again that wouldn't surprise us would be the name of Moses. And there are a series of other words that if they're repeated over and over again, we know and understand why. But the word that I'm thinking about this morning is unusual. The word simply is the word tzur, which means rock. The history of that word is, in a very modern context, very interesting. And what I want to do is take you back to April 1948. Now, I wasn't alive then, but I do read books, so I have some sense of what was taking place. In April of 1948, uh, it's roughly about a month before the Declaration of Independence by the State of Israel. And so what the government, the provisional government of the State of Israel needed was a declaration of independence, a document that would provide the legal and ethical and historical groundwork for them to be able to declare independence. So what they did in typical Jewish fashion is that they struck a committee <laughs> and they first turned around to the, um, uh, the provisional government. There was an attorney general. His name was Pinchas Rosen. And they asked Pinchas Rosen to draft a declaration of independence. As fate would have it, Pinchas Rosen had a first cousin who was a rabbi from Philadelphia. His name was Harry, um, I don't know how to say it in English, Davidowitz? Davidovich is called in Hebrew. Davidowitz, I think. Anyways, he calls up his cousin because that's what you do when you have a problem. You call your cousin up. And he says, how would you write this? So Rabbi Davidowitz turns around and he says, well, you know, you should probably use the American Declaration of Independence as a really good foundation to write yours. So along with Pinchas Rosen and his cousin, they draft a Declaration of Independence. Now, for those of you who have even a passing familiarity with the American Declaration of Independence, you know that the name of God is repeated many, many times. So 
the draft of this declaration goes to the committee and it ignites a firestorm. The firestorm was is that there were representatives on the committee who were ardent labor socialist Zionists, atheists, who were appalled at the idea that God's name would be put into this document. Okay, so then what happens is they take it out of the hands of Pinchas Rosen and his first cousin, the rabbi, and then they give it to another committee. This other committee was called the Committee of Five, and it was headed by Moshe Sharet, who was the second prime minister of Israel, future state of Israel. And Sharet assembles, when all else fails, Stanley, what do you do? You assemble a team of lawyers. So he assembles a, assembles a team of lawyers, and they draft this document that, historically speaking, had more therefores and furthermores than probably any document in human history ever since. Ben-Gurion took one look at this and he said, what were you thinking? He says, the Declaration of Independence isn't a contract. He goes, this is a document that is announcing an event in human history that has never happened before. That a people lost their land were exiled for 2,000 years, and then they come back. It never happened before. And you drafted a document filled with therefores and furthermores? That can't happen. So then what happens is, when all else fails, what do you do? You write it yourself. <laughs> and more or less what Ben-Gurion actually ended up doing, he had some people helping him, and he drafted his own document. What he was really careful in doing when he worked on drafting the document with a few other people, he was very careful not to ask people for their approval of what the text was. Because he knew that as soon as you start asking Jews what they think about something, nothing will ever get done. Because they'll be too busy complaining and talking about different opinions. So there is a number of things that Ben-Gurion did that were, we take it for granted now, but were actually kind of groundbreaking. Number one, they did not call it, he changed the name, in Hebrew it's called the Hachraza, it's an announcement. He now officially termed it as being a Megillah, a Megillah, like a biblical document. The other thing that Ben-Gurion did is that when he called for the drafting of the declaration, this Megillah, it's Ma'ut, this Declaration of Independence, he said that it should be written on klaf. What is klaf? It's the same kosher parchment that's used for a Torah. In the words of Ben-Gurion, he says, we will go from the Tanakh to the Palmach. That's what he was thinking. And lastly, what did, what did Ben-Gurion do? Not lastly, second to last, what Ben-Gurion did is that he hired a Torah scribe to write on the parchment the text of the Declaration of Independence. But most importantly, what he did is that instead of using the name of God in the text of the Declaration, of using the expression Elohei Yisrael, the God of the people of Israel, what did Ben-Gurion put into it? He used the expression Sur Yisrael, the rock of the people of Israel. And why did he use that text? Because of the Torah portion from this morning.
which actually, the word sore is mentioned five times. That word is also used repeatedly by the prophet Yeshayahu, the prophet Isaiah. And that word later with that expression was also adopted as the prayer on behalf of the state of Israel when it refers to God as Tzor v'go'alo, the rock and the redeemer of the people of Israel. That Ben-Gurion's idea of creating a document where people could understand and believe different things, and yet it all says the same thing, was revolutionary, it was also genius. Appreciate the fact that there are two words that are completely absent from the Declaration of Independence for the State of Israel. The first word is the word God. The second word is democratic. There is no mention of the state of Israel being democratic. And yet, how do we know that the state of Israel is both a deeply Jewish country and a deeply democratic country? Because of the word Tzor, the word of the rock of the people of Israel in it, and also the mentioning that it is a Jewish state. Because how could you have a Jewish state without an idea that it would be a country of many different opinions. And so lastly, what we see in the Declaration of Independence is a deeper idea. And that is, this comes by way of another American rabbi, this being Mordechai Kaplan, who lived 100 years ago. Kaplan said, why is the, essentially the last Torah portion that's read on a Shabbat, why is the name of God referred to as the Tzor Yisrael, as the rock of the people of Israel? And Kaplan says, because there comes a moment in every people's life and in every person's life when God cannot just be an abstract, ineffable concept, God also has to represent something concrete in our lives, something touchable, something real. And that's why Moses refers to God as the rock of the people of Israel, because a rock you can always touch. And so the God of the people of Israel is both very much above and invisible, but also at certain moments in our life, very tangible and very touchable. Shabbat shalom to you.